It's episode 70 of the Planet LP podcast. Hi, and welcome to it, kids. I'm Ted Astrogadu. As we do every month, new music gets the spotlight when Keith Creighton from Popdose pops in with the new music report. Last month was a bit of a truncated version of the report because we had guests. This month, it's back to our usual banter. Keep spreading the word about the Planet LP podcast to your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, or whoever you know that loves discussions about music. Planet LP is on the most popular podcasting apps. And if you don't bother with podcasting apps, you can listen to Planet LP on the website, planetlp.com. Social channels are as follows. Facebook, Instagram, Groupie, and Twitter. Just search for Planet LP and give us a follow or email me at ted at planetlp.com. And now let's get to the good stuff with Keith Creighton and the Popdose new music report for February 2023 and other chitty chatty. Hello, Keith. You are back for more fun. This month brings some interesting music selections because we as music lovers and music consumers we're faced with more and more choices, it seems like, every month. More than we can ever wade through. And that's why you're here with some curated selections that you might want to add to your playlist. Well, not Keith adding to his playlist. He's already added it and bought the CDs. But you, you, dear listener, to add to your playlist or buy them on CDs. I have a few songs I'd like to highlight as well. That's coming up in a bit. But I think we've got a little bit of ground to go over. Uh, some things that happened in the month of February that we might want to talk about. One is the Grammys, right? Yeah. And I think the overall theme, I've looked at what we're going to try to talk about cram into the next hour. One of the themes that's going to kind of come through is divisive artists and divisive performances. So Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be kind of fun as we talk about all of that. Let's start with the Grammys. We'll get to the Rock Hall, the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, yeah. New music picks, because a lot of the new music picks are highly divisive when you look at what the blogosphere and different sites and different people online, social media are talking about Mm -hmm, it. So I think it's mm going to be a fun episode. So hang on. So So let's start with the Grammys. Um, There's, I don't want to run down the entire list of winners, but album of the year, song of the year, Harry Styles won. And the song of the year one was kind of an odd one. And that was just like that by Bonnie Raitt. And I think that she was even pretty uh, kind of stunned. You were like, wait, what? Me? (laughs) I forget what there was a UK publication. I think it was the Telegraph. May have been the Guardian, but said unknown artist wins big award. (laughs) I'm like, okay, you have no idea who Bonnie Raitt is. Like she's a freaking legend. I know. It's just like, that's when you know the times are changing, right? The People are like, who felt a little bit like your standard fare of winners, except for that wild card with wild card that is with Bonnie Raitt. Um, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm just going through the list. I see Adele on there. I see Michael Buble, Beyonce, Ozzy Osbourne won. That's great because that yeah, was, that one was your, nice. Yeah, that yeah. was one of your picks. And it was good to see that Ozzy had won. Yeah, but the thing what? is, it's really, the Grammys are a celebration of sales. And it's really about the people that are making the most money in the industry, mm-hmm. keeping the walls high and the, the fortress fortified, you know, in terms of new people coming in. And so it really is just, you know, I think Bonnie Raitt was, instead of really being the song of the year, you know, it's really just a recognition of her contribution over the years. I'm always suspect when I see the awards, like even Harry Styles getting all this rewards, it's his worst of his three albums. You Mm -hmm. know, I like the other Mm -hmm. two a lot better. I think this one was really, really safe, but everyone loves Harry. So of course they're going to keep him up there. 
that's the word I think kind of encapsulates the Grammys, safe choices. Except I saw another group that you really were you know, pretty like, yeah, these guys are great, is Wet Leg. And they won a couple of yeah. Grammys as well. So uh, Shays Lounge won Best Alternative Music Performance. And then an album that I have been behind since I started listening to it is Madison Cunningham's Revealer. She won Best Folk Album, which I found odd because I don't consider that a folk record, but uh, what do I know, right? I'm just a guy with a podcast. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, music is splintered into so many genres and subgenres and things that are almost uncategorizable that, yeah, the Grammys would be like a 72-hour broadcast if we right. really acknowledged everything that's happening in popular culture. And so, yeah, they kind of have to shove her into a pigeonhole. But, you know, good for her. It's really good. That's a great record. Give her a Grammy. To, you know, she could have won Best Metal Performance for that, you know, if they needed to. So, <laughs> And I think, you know, like Willie Nelson got a couple of Grammy nods and he won a couple of awards. Kendrick Lamar, he won a, a number on in the, in the rap category. And then some country artists that I just kind of started listening to because I don't really listen to a lot of country. If you listen to my last episode, you'll, yeah. you'll understand why. But I've tried to change that and mix that up a bit. Yeah. So I listened to Carly Pierce and Ashley McBride's song, Never Wanted oh, nice, to Be yeah. That Girl, which was very nice. And then I listened also to Cody Johnson's Till You Can't. Both very well produced. And if I can just dovetail into production for a moment, that country music tends to have a certain production quality that is different from, say, if you go to rock or even rap. And that is they really push that vocal front into the mix. So somebody, it sounds yeah. like somebody's really getting into your ears and singing very earnestly to you. That is something that is very effective, I think, for country music in that it creates a much stronger bond between the listener and the artist because of the way they mixed that music. That's just my hot take on it. I know oh, yeah. we don't try to do hot takes, but that's my hot take. <laughs> well, I've been buying a lot of country lately from the really exciting you know, women artists in the industry, like the mm -hmm. Maren Morris and the Amanda Shires. And but when you talk to country music fans, because I'm always like, okay, all the George Strait, all the Randy Travis, all that kind mm -hmm. of mainstream country AM or the country radio music, it all sounds the same. You know, you've really? got the steel okay. guitar, the slide guitar, the same kind of production, all the melodies sound the same. Mm -hmm. But what a country music fan will say is, at least the ones I've talked to, is it's all about the stories. So it's basically... Right like a romance novel, all the romance novels kind of look the same, you know, it's always going to be about the Duke and the, you know, will they, won't they kind of thing. And so I think that's what they're really into is the storytelling of the different songs. So, but I think there's some good stuff in country. Yeah. My whole thing is, especially when we're talking about safe with the Grammys, I mean, look at all the hubbub Beyonce now has more Grammys than anyone in history. And yet mm -hmm. everybody was upset that she didn't get album of the year as if like she was entitled to it. Yeah, and it goes yeah. back to Kanye jumping on stage, ripping it out of Taylor Swift's hand, saying, no, Beyonce deserved this. Like, everyone thinks that Beyonce is entitled to everything. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the worship of Beyonce is just so, to me, it's disturbing. Like, I'm so yeah. taken aback by how zealot, they've almost elevated her to a religious-like figure. She can do no wrong. She deserves everything. She always has to be album of the year. I mean, I think she's good. I just don't think she's that great, but I, I'm more scared of the hero worship that people have placed on her. Oh, absolutely. 
And I was talking with my daughter about that very same thing and saying, there's a problem that I have with, and I, I think we touched on this in a, in a former episode, of critics falling all over themselves to say, Beyonce is one of the best, always tops the list, and then second would be Taylor Swift. I said to my daughter, you know, who's a huge Taylor Swift fan, no, no disrespect to your friend, but- did she really have the best album or the second best album of the year? Uh, it seems like it's a it's a very narrow field, and there's only a certain number of people that will say yes. And I look at like Rolling Stone, which they themselves even fall all over saying, you know, it's, it's Taylor and Beyonce, it's Taylor and Beyonce, yeah. and it just keeps going with the same rotating cast of a small group of people. And I said, it just feels like. We have so much music that's out there. I mean, are yeah. people going to be looking – like you even posed this question. You said, will people be listening to Midnight's like they do 1989 10 years from now? And yeah. your answer, I think, was no. no. You know, they just won't. It's just content. You know, It's basically everyone listens, like especially what was it, the last – the Lemonade record. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Beyonce's revealing to us what's happening with her and Jay-Z behind the scenes and his infidelity rumors and all that kind of stuff. And – you know, even on some recent Madonna records, it's like, oh, this is Madonna's breakup record where we're going to hear all about Guy Ritchie, where it's like these albums become blog posts, you know, <laughs> and it's just the latest content. Like, you know, Ariana Grande literally has a song called Pete Davidson. Remember, Ariana Grande is a great singer, but most of her records are completely forgotten when her next record comes out, because it's just always what's the latest content that she has. And since people don't have her albums sitting on shelves and it's just what's the latest content they're accessing online, mm-hmm. I don't think this stuff is going to have the longevity that meanwhile, the industry is putting hundreds of millions of dollars into old catalogs because they, the industry is gambling that the Springsteens and the Dillons and all of them are going to have catalogs that are going to be eternally licensable. But every time Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce or Jay-Z release anything, if people don't, like, I think critics are afraid that they, if they don't put it at number one, two or three, their fans are going to be just like Fox news, you know, like they've yeah. got to cater to their yeah. fans, you know, it's like, okay, if we don't start denying the election, the fans are going to go to Newsmax. And I think it's the same thing. Yeah. You have to anoint them in the top or else, you know, they don't have any credibility. I think the Grammys are the same way. That's very insightful. I think you're you've hit a mark there that the it's not just the political culture, but it's the pop culture too. Any artist with a massive fan base tends to control the narrative. And woe be to the critic who says anything contrary because mm-hmm. they risk the wrath of the fan club and will come yeah. after you either on social media or I'm not gonna read your stupid publication anymore because you don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, so everyone's a critic, and it, it kind of decenters the role of the critic because you and I, we write for and have written in the past critical reviews, and I don't mean that to mean negative because I think that's one of the things that people tend to confuse. When they hear the word critic, they automatically think that there's always a negative connotation, like, oh, these people hate everything. Yeah. But that's not true. You're, you're assessing the work in a critical way to, to highlight what seems to be effective in a piece of work or a piece of art and things that kind of miss the mark and the reasons why this didn't seem to work. And you're always going to get people who will say, well, that's my favorite album, the one you dissed. You know, there's just no shortage of those people. And it doesn't matter even if an artist would say, 
yeah, that probably wasn't my best work. There's going to yeah. be some fan to say, no, no, that's a stroke of genius what you did. Yeah, like Rolling Stone actually, just because we're going to talk about divisive reviews when we get to Maniskin, talking about the new Maniskin record in a bit. But Rolling Stone just put out a really good top 50 worst albums by amazing artists. Yeah. You know, so they looked yeah. at all these iconic artists and looked at their worst album. And I thought it was a really well-written piece because it's mm-hmm. not just a takedown, like we're going to talk about Pitchfork and, and right, Madison, right, right. but they really kind of worked through and they actually talked to the artists about where they missed the mark on the particular record, what was happening in the band's lives, what was the pressure from the label, where was society at the time, you know, how they made the wrong choices when coming in to make an artistic statement. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really well done. Like that was a great way to have critical discussion without being clickbait takedown piece. I just think a lot of times, you know, as with the Grammys, and we're going to talk about the Rock Hall in a second too, it's like they're playing to the base. They are afraid to, because look at how well organized the BTS army is, the Swifties, the Bay Hive. It's scary when a fan base is that organized and they realize, okay, if we say anything bad about it, we're going to get taken down. And the Daily Show, in one of the last episodes of Trevor Noah, they actually did a piece about how you can't say anything bad about Beyonce. And you could tell that Trevor Noah was nervous doing the piece (laughs) about this because he knew, holy shit, if we take this comedy piece even a little bit further, we are going to get destroyed. Exactly. So it's really weird to watch. They can't even criticize on the phenomenon itself. You know, like I'm not worried about, talking here on the planet LP podcast. Cause I think people that listen to this podcast are pretty enlightened about and pretty open-minded about things. Yeah. Imagine if it went viral, like, Oh my God, two guys sitting around <laughs> talking bad things about Beyonce. <laughs> oh, the humanity. Watch as these two Gen Xers diss Beyonce and watch the reaction. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. Here is a perfect point. You know, I wrote a really critical piece for pop dose years ago about Like here's 10 ways to improve record store day, because my Mm -hmm. whole thing was if you're trying to have people buy records year round, why are you focusing everything on two days a year and really kind of catering to the aftermarket? Because you Mm -hmm. put scarcity out there. eBay sellers were hiring homeless people to stand in line and then they would swap in at the last minute, grab all the good stuff and shove it online and make all the profit off aftermarket. I'm like, that doesn't help a record store year round. And so I had really constructive ways that they could kind of spread that love to literally weekly buying. So I published it. Then um, salon.com asked if they could repurpose it. Mm -hmm. And, but when they repurposed it, they changed the headline to Record store day should be abolished, you know, <laughs> and the, the head of record, your point. <laughs> yeah. So the head of record store day emailed me saying I've completely ruined his life's work. Oh, you know, man. he said, you've taken everything we have done and just completely destroyed it. Wow. And so then I gave him the chance to do a complete rebuttal on pop dose, which he did. And he and I are friends to this day on Facebook, you know? Oh, great. Okay. So, there's a, you know, but, it's, there's but a, Salon a, got its clickbait, you know, because right, that right. thing is if, oh, here's 10 constructive ways to improve record store day. No one's going to click on that. But no, some asshole says it should be abolished. And all of a sudden that probably did really well for them. And I got a hundred bucks and a lot of headaches for doing that. So, <laughs> never again. 
I hate to say it. I, I think that on. should also be noted that oftentimes writers don't write the headlines. It's the editors yeah. that put the headlines together because they're looking to see how can we get this article read more? So we have to come up with something, whether it's inflammatory or something that's alluring. That's their job, the editor's job yeah. often. But Popdos, we get to create our own headlines. So that's a little yeah. bit of an anomaly. Keith, you make a good point here in that sometimes critics do <laughs> yeoman's work in showing the the positives and the negatives of a piece of work of art. And then sometimes an editor can really twist things and put a bad headline on an article that may not even actually correspond so much to a particular piece of work that you're you're doing, a la what you did with Record Store Day. But one of the things that you and I want to talk about now is this band. Ha, 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 ha. You broke my heart, so I crushed your car. You say you're sorry, well, I bet you are. Ha 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 And blah 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 I hate your face but I like your moms You play it smart but you look so dumb Da 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 And then we went to your favorite club She drank too much and she said you are A twa 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 And ha 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 Drove her to a parking lot. She smiled and told me, That's a song, Blah Blah Blah, by Maniskin or Monaskin, is how it's pronounced. And that's from their new album called Rush. One of the reasons why we want to talk about this is the way in which a critic from Pitchfork wrote about this particular album, an album that they basically said was absolutely horrible, terrible in every way. I didn't know much about this record until Keith told me about it and says, you know, we should talk about this takedown that Pitchfork did. And so I went and I re-listened to the record or not re-listened, but listened to it. And I've re-listened to it a couple of times already. And I didn't actually find it as horrible as the Pitchfork writer did. And I don't know about you, Keith, because you actually bought the CD and I was just listening to it on Apple Music. But I guess we should preface this by talking a little bit about the takedown from this critic that gave it like a 2.0 out of 10, I'm guessing. Here's the ironic thing. Sometimes a bad review can actually help goose albums for sales and especially can goose streams in this era because it kind of gives them a level of publicity that they may not have gotten otherwise. So I think at the end of the day, there might be some good that comes out of this. But yeah, the the headline from Pitchfork, Jeremy D. Larson, who is their reviews editor, wrote this piece. And the headline that literally showed up across all my social media feeds was, the Italian rock band has become a global sensation. Their new album is absolutely terrible at every conceivable level. Even if you've never heard of the band, you're probably going to be curious to go kind of check it out to see if he's right. Or you just read the headline, feel smug about yourself and move on. But it's one of those things where I completely forgot that I bought the CD. Mm-hmm. I filed it by mistake. And as I was even preparing for the February New Music Report, this was not on there because I had filed it. And I'm like, holy shit, I, I have this CD. I'm going to go down and listen to it. I mean, it's gorgeously packaged. I'm a fan of the Eurovision phenomenon. The fact mm-hmm. that the, mm-hmm. what I love about it, much like soccer, you know, football to the rest of the world, it's a very global experience that America doesn't participate in. 
And I love how the Will Ferrell movie, you know, that was about Eurovision, they could have skewered it like a Pitchfork review, but it was a very loving tribute to the whole Eurovision culture. And so Monoskin won two years ago. They're an Italian glam rock band. And they really didn't come on my radar until they did a duet with Iggy Pop. And, you know, I'm obsessed with Iggy Pop. And so then Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, now I'm paying attention to this band. When their big American, like English debut was kind of, you know, kind of coming out, I put it on pre-order, bought it, listened to it, enjoyed it, and filed it by mistake. So I'm like, okay, I got to bring this back out. And man, this review by Larson really got under my skin (laughs) because I started piecing the stuff together. I'm hit or miss on Pitchfork. But mainly it's clickbait revenue that's built upon American and indie elitism. You know, when you look at the top 50 albums of the year, they really go out of their way to find obscure shit that proves that they are cooler than you are and know about shit you don't know. But when you look back, go back to any Pitchfork roundup of the best reviews, 90% of those artists you've never heard of and have never heard of again. You know, it's not as if they are finding the next big thing before they go mainstream or finding these culturally amazing things that then go on to be like, oh, these are milestone records and Pitchfork mm-hmm. found them first. They really go out of their way just to find shit that's cool for the sake of being cool. You know, so here's what they wrote about the record. It's a retro, levicious attitude that feels neither cool nor popular. And there it stands in opposition to what is cool or popular. Now, to me, that completely sums up Pitchfork. It stands in opposition to what is cool and popular, which is their shit. They're completely obscure artists. What put Pitchfork on the map years ago was their takedown of Jets Get Born. You know, so these were swaggering kind of American style rock, but from Australians. And so back then they said 50,000 shit faced Americans are out there and upwards of five Belgian exchange students all of them dying for a fresh take on old school American rock and roll. You Aussie sons of bitches think you can handle that? I mean, I'm not that worried. Yeah, I have complete faith in you guys. Just go out there and give them what they want. So that was the critic talking to the band in this imaginary backstage pep talk before Jet goes out there and you know slays because Jet was really popular. It was a huge record. They were doing really well in concert. And so I think what ruffled the feathers of Pitchfork, because just even think about the name Pitchfork, torches and pitchforks, that's <laughs> what Pitchfork does. It's snarky, miserable people writing these kind of reviews. You know, to me, was an entire manifestation of a website based on a three-letter record review in Musician Magazine. Back in the day, they called the GTR record SHT. That was the <laughs> entire review in print. And it was legendary. And Ultimate Classic Rock has a great deep dive with that writer talking about the impact of that review. But the kind of the overall thing is it kind of gave birth to Pitchfork. Pitchfork just doesn't want to have fun. You know, there is some good journalism on there, but most of the clickbait is really the snarky shit. Right, right. My whole take is if it's arduous torture porn spelunking the dark caves of an artist's damaged psyche, then Pitchfork's all in. But God forbid you release a party album. And that's what this is. The new record to me, like the Rush by Mona Skin, you know, reminds me of what the Arctic Monkeys, before they became an art band, you know, remember the first couple of Arctic Monkey records? They were fun. You could swagger. I bet you look good on the dance floor. You know, remember Kaiser Chiefs and Franz Ferdinand? You know, they started that kind of party swag rock scene in the 2000s and then abandoned it for artsier fare. When you listen to the Mona Skin, whether it's the Italian lyrics or the English lyrics, 
they aren't that deep. This isn't life-changing. It's not some cultural milestone, but my God, it's fun to listen to. And most of the Pitchfork review isn't about the band. It's about the people that listen to the band and find joy. Mm-hmm. In it. mm-hmm. It's a complete takedown on it. You know, the, and- the only thing that I thought that they were trying to get at that they didn't like or the reviewer did not like about the record was summed up right towards the end that he reveals that Rush was produced by the band along with megawatt pop songwriter Max Martin and a long list of radio hit makers whose glossy work is insoluble with Monaskin's uninhibited over-torqued dick rock. The production sounds so cramped, digitized, and swagless that it seems to be optimized for getting busy in a Buffalo Wild Wings bathroom. It's funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these are funny, these are funny critiques, if you will, but if really it's the production he doesn't like, is it really cramped, digitized, and swagless, if it were? I didn't feel that. I felt like it was it, it felt actually a little bit more slammed and not crammed or cramped. I felt that the digitized stuff, I don't understand what he's trying to get at with that critique, but I felt like that there was, especially with the song that I played at the outset of this section, blah, blah, blah. I thought it was funny. And then it got furious. And I thought, this is kind of, this is amusing. And so I went back and re-listened to it a couple more times. And and now I kind of like the song. I really enjoy it. I don't feel like it's some sort of, you know, over-torqued dick rock. You seem to come at them for rock stars being rock stars. Remember when rock stars were fun? Mm -hmm. You know, whether it was your Van Halen or your Motley Crue kind of thing, before it became all too woke and me too and all this bullshit. You know, it's like rock stars used to have swagger. I think swagger versus dick rock is much better. You know, there's a girl in the band and she has as much swagger as the rest of the band. Mm -hmm. But I think he was coming at them for being posers. And I'm like, no, I think this is who they really are. Yeah. Unlike when Arcade Fire did a whole period of their records where they were pretending to be indulgent rock stars. And that really wasn't their brand. And it wasn't who they were. And then that came back to bite Arcade Fire in the ass when Wynn Butler did reveal himself to be cheating on his wife, you mm-hmm. know, doing all the, the rock star excess shit that he th- said he was making fun of. You know, remember Bono made fun of the rock star. Remember when he was the fly? What was the other one? McFisto or something? Where he was oh, like a God. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and you could tell like, because they, they, those were parodies. But they were so like kind of like not true. And I fully believe Mona Skin is who Mona Skin says they are. But I'm gonna go back to what you were just saying about you know the digitized and kind of cramped mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. that they say they heard in Mona Skin. So I went and looked at a review the, of a record that they are currently completely fawning over. Caroline Polacek, I think that's how you say her name. They call her new record the best album of her career is a transformative pop experience, a passionate, richly melodic odyssey into the darkest corners of love. Now, I'm not going to stoop to their level of takedown, but I listen to it. I'm like, okay, I want to hear what they really like. Now, here's mm-hmm. an album that Pitchfork loves. It was one of the worst albums I've heard in years. Wow. You know, to me, I found it overly precious and preening the embodiment of like an entire generation giving participation ribbons. You know, never being asked to try harder. You know, Caroline is really cute, but they bury her in Pro Tools and Auto-Tune. You know, and I found all the production completely stilted and the lyrics were so precious. Look how cute and clever I am, you know? And it was just one of those things where 
I found this completely a revolting record to listen to, but yet I'm not going to go out of my way and publish some clickbait on this on Popdose because you know what? In this world, everybody can listen to that record for free mm-hmm. and make up their own opinion. Yeah. You know, it's not as if you had to buy it and then you're going to regret your purchase because some, you know, reviewer lauded over it. And so you took their word on it, bought it, and then like, wait a minute, this doesn't deliver on the review. Now you can listen to that review, like it and take it or leave it because there's probably a lot of people that like that record. And why should I get in the way of Caroline's ability to make money and have a career, which she's going to do really well for herself. Mm -hmm. Personally, I found that record completely stilted, but since she's kind of obscure and unknown, Pitchfork got completely behind it. I mean, they really loved that Fiona Apple record last year, which I found completely unlistenable. You know, right. and you I didn't I, like it, but I, I kind of liked some of the, a couple of the songs on there. Okay. So there, there's, there's an example of you and I hearing different things. Now, if we actually sat down and wrote a piece about why you found it unlistenable, while I found a couple of songs quite compelling or listenable, yeah. I think that you and I could probably hash out a piece on what you found lacking and what I found not lacking <laughs> something that was a little bit palatable for me and unpalatable for you. But that's the cool thing. That would be actual journalism and that Mm -hmm. would be actual discussion and critique. The stuff that's missing from a lot of the, what do you call it? The siloed MSNBCs versus Fox News kind of thing where you're only getting one kind of opinion. And to me, that's what makes this podcast fun is we could discuss the stuff and have opinions and disagree with each other. And then, but all in all, celebrating artists and music and people that are putting their time and life into these art, these works of art and putting them out to the world. So, so whether it's the Caroline Palachuk record that I don't like, or the Monoskin record that I do like, I think they're both worth listening to and for people making up their own opinion. And if they like it, then they keep enjoying it without thinking what, what does Keith from planet LP think? Or what does the guy from pitchfork think? Make up your own mind and enjoy your music. Circling back really quick before we pivot to the rock and roll hall of fame yeah, is the three-letter review that Pitchfork essentially gave to her. Oh, yeah. That reminds me, and it seems like all things tend to go back to this is Spinal Tap, because one yeah. of their one of their records was called Shark Sandwich, and <laughs> the wow. review was two words, shit sandwich. <laughs> Love Spinal yeah. Tap. And that's you know a great mockumentary that has a lot of truth to it. But things are different now, because in the old days, critics were... The buffer, they had the chance to listen to a record before it came mm-hmm. out, and therefore you judged right. your your purchase. You you based your purchase on whether they liked it or not. But now Absolutely. the fact that everything Absolutely. is out there yeah. streaming, you can just basically I think the the the, the editor or the, the the critic's job is to let people be aware that the product is out there. And then people can go try it for themselves because mm-hmm. with hundreds and hundreds of records coming out every week great albums just get completely lost. Iggy Pop has only been out for two months and it already feels like a century ago in terms of where pop culture is. Yeah, that's a good point. Is that when you have a release cycle that is never ending, that when you create the event releases, how long does that really last? It, it doesn't. You know, it's, it's very short. I can't remember which artist it was who said that they thought when they were invited to be a musical guest. It was either on Jimmy Fallon or Kimmel, something like that. And they thought, oh, well, this will help sell records. And they went on, they did their performance and they said it didn't budge the needle a bit. 
they didn't sell any more records than that. So it makes it sort of like, okay, you have to kind of put some friction into the system, slow things down a bit, and make sure that when you're really going to release a record, that it is an event that you get people to listen to it prior and really give it an assessment. Maybe going back to somewhat of that old model, I know you can't really go back to anything at this point in this world, but yeah. maybe folding in some elements of that would slow down the fire hose of music that we are given to listen to, which ultimately gets ignored. The vast majority of it just gets ignored. And then when you get big artists like an Iggy Pop, or I guess now legacy artists like Iggy Pop, and yeah. he's putting out a pretty good record. But two months later, are people still talking about that record? Are people still listening to that record? Are you hearing it in places where whether it pops up on streaming or you know, again, legacy media? Does it get played on the radio at all? No, not really. Maybe some specialty show or something. You know, I think that one of the things that you and I can appreciate as people who were critics at one point and still have a critical edge to them is that it's okay to do a takedown of an artist, but you don't want to do it so much in a way that it's more about the critic's ability yeah. To form the insult, because that's really what it is. Because to me, that gives criticism a bad word. It's a, that that becomes critics become haters, and that's all they are. And yeah. I think that that Pitchfork review revealed itself to be just that. It's just a hate review, and I guess that's Pitchfork's model. But as you said, that it's right there in the title. Pitchfork, well, that, they're coming yeah. at you for pitchforks well, and torches. That's what when you think about. It, let's let's remove you know the crit the editors from this. It's the business model. Mm -hmm. You know, a glowing review is only going to get so much play, but a bad review is going to get a ton of, it is going to spread like wildfire. And that's what drives their business model. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah, so that's they need part. to put that content out there to appease the beast, like the algorithms on social media. And that's what's going to get people talking. And so I hope Mona skin comes out smelling like a rose from this because it's going to get a lot more people to pay attention to their record than if they, you know, they had given it an 8.0. We shall see. Time will tell. And we're going to talk later on about some more divisive bands like Ghost and Smashing Pumpkins. But mm -hmm. you know, I think that sets up. I think we're going to talk a little bit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We are indeed. recognize the clips of those songs they are extremely popular and they've been in the popular culture a very long time those are the 2023 nominees you recognize these songs from their hooks whether kate bush being used in stranger things at least the last season of stranger things to great effect or werewolves of london warren zevon that song gets played almost every halloween i think these are some of the nominees that are going to be uh, up for induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Uh, we talked about the Grammys being safe. This sounds like a pretty safe bet. I think it's a really strong roster this year. And it also mm-hmm. shows the weakness of the Rock Hall where why can't they just induct all of them? You know, mm-hmm. right. And this is where we talked previously about, you know, maybe there should be two inclusion or two ceremonies a year just to get more of these acts in. Ask any critic. And there's probably still 50 bands on their list that have never even been considered for the Rock Hall that deserve to be in there, especially in the underground punk scene. I think it's really important that Joy Division and New Order got nominated together because it mm-hmm. really is right. one band that just evolved right. after the departure of Ian Curtis. If you had to pluck your, was it, what do they do, five or six? What would be your five or six from the list that you would choose? Well, obviously Kate Bush, because I think you and I are pretty upfront yeah. about our love of Kate Bush. I would say that the spinners, because I'm thinking like, what took so what took them so long to get in, you know, nominated? That's yeah. like, this is a band. I mean, this is a band that's been around for a long time. It's They've been 59. eligible to be nominated for a long time. There's only one spinner left from the original. Yeah. Henry Farnborough has been with them since 54. Everyone else has only been at, as long back as 2009. Because mm-hmm. you know, the spinners is more of a brand than a band. But I think they definitely have had that impact. So I think they're almost a lock to get in. Because when you look at the rest of the list, if they weren't in, it'd be really lopsided in terms of both racially and from that genre. Having Cindy Lauper in the mix, it seems like she's only known for that one song now. Girls just want to have fun. But she had other hits, but she also made a big pop cultural splash. I know that Madonna kind of eclipsed her. I can't remember which magazine it was, but pegged her as sort of the face of 80s feminism. And that didn't actually take off, but I think that she did have a bigger impact that people than people want to recognize. So I would I would put her in there definitely. And she was an LBGTQ advocate way back in the AIDS era, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where, like, her impact and George Michael's impact are huge. And so yes. it'll be interesting to yes. see. And they deserve to be in there. But I'm wondering if Cindy and Kate are going to cancel each other out, you know, in terms of the list, and then Cheryl yeah. Crow sails through, you know. So we shall see. Wham should be in there too. I mean, they Wham was amazing, and I think, but together, George Michael and Wham would have been a perfect thing. That way, Andrew right. Ridgely could have gotten into Willie Nelson. There's a safe bet. I mean, you yeah. know he's going to get inducted after, especially after winning Grammys at this late yeah. stage of his career. This would be a nice capstone. I'm not even sure how old he is now, but I'm sure he's definitely in his 80s. So. Yeah. How long more has he got? He might as well. I mean, it's almost like a lifetime achievement award at this point to have Willie Nelson come in. But yeah, yeah. but it is weird because the country music already has their Hall of Fame. I don't know much Willie Nelson that's in the rock and roll genre. But that's the whole thing is like, okay, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now really just the pop culture Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. or, you know, Mm -hmm. the pop music Hall of Fame? Because when you look at all the hip hop artists, yeah, they have rock star attitude, but it's definitely, you know, should there be a hip hop Hall of Fame or should this just be all inclusive? And does the word Rock and Roll Hall of Fame even make sense anymore for what this is? Rock music. Okay, I guess we have to click back in time when rock and roll was all-encompassing. It was more of an attitude, less than a genre or a series of sub-genres. Now, these days, when you hear the term rock and roll, for better or for worse, most people probably think of dad rock. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, it's this older genre of music that doesn't really have the kind of cultural bite that it used to have. It's not dangerous. It's not anything really that innovative like it used to be. 
So it's kind of reached its end. And in some ways, I guess you could say the same for hip hop. Hip hop's pretty conservative in terms of its its style of music and what it considers a core hip hop sound that it will evolve here and there around the edges. But for the most part, it stays within this sort of essence. And I, I think with rock music, because it's gone through so many permutations, yeah. that at this point, it is kind of wide. But do the spinners belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Sure, why yeah. not? I mean, it comes yeah. out of that. It comes out of that genre. But we'll see how okay, it all that's how it all a wrap for out this episode. End, but I feel Thank like you for taking the to go time back to, to listen. Your, <laughs> back soon kind of with theme, another episode right the theme here of our on first the two segments. LP podcast. Yeah. The fact that certain Take things care. are safe. You know, the Grammys are safe. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's safe. These are safe bets in a way. If we flash forward 25 years from now, and if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is still around and the Grammys are still around, are you going to see some of these albums with that kind of longevity? Are people going to be going back and listening to Lemonade and saying, my God, that was just phenomenal. Yeah. This is a classic or Midnight's or anything like that. So we'll see yeah. what the test of time, what happens with the test of time. Yeah. So for me, if you're honoring careers, the go-to ones are Kate Bush, Joy Division, New Order, George Michael and Wham, Soundgarden, The White Stripes, and Warren Zevon. They had pretty big careers. But then you look at Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Rage Against the Machine, and Tribe Called Quest, they had a milestone album. If I had to peg people out, I would get rid of Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Rage Against the Machine, yeah, Tribe Called Quest. I'd knock them all out. Yeah. With the White Stripes, I would say because of Jack White's output post-White Stripes era. I don't know if that even gets lumped into it, but he's become a more innovative artist the longer he's been recording. So each album gets more interesting than the previous one. As a person, you may not like Jack White. He seems to be a person that has his own sordid past and can be a divisive person, but there's no doubting his talent in terms of his ability to not only do innovative songwriting, but also do some really good production work as well. We're going to talk Smashing Pumpkins in a second, because there's a band that I don't know if they've ever been nominated that definitely deserved to be in the Rock Hall in terms Mm -hmm. of what they did, especially during their first 10 years, let alone the great stuff they're doing now. Billy's a divisive guy. I doubt he might never get nominated. So we'll see how that all turns out. Well, why don't we pivot now to the new album? And, And I know we've been talking a lot about pop culture in terms of the the Grammys and also the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but there's new music coming out and let's get right to it. You talked about the Smashing Pumpkins album and this is quite an epic. Autumn yeah. Acts 1 and 2. Billy always makes these big promises. Like if there, he had another series that was going to be like multiple albums years ago that he never really delivered on. Mm-hmm. He just kind of let it go after a bit, you know, and he was like, Oh yeah, this is going to be like, you know, I'm just making this up like a 65 album, you know, song cycle or something like that. (laughs) And then he just kind of walked away from it. It's a very huge promise that he made a couple of years ago. We're going to make the sequel to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, you know, which was their double album. Absolutely huge 1995 masterpiece, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And so like, okay, that's like a lot of talk, you know, but he's got the three original members or, you know, James Eha and Jimmy Chamberlain. Darcy, you know, the bassist is still missing, nor sure. is Melissa Oftumar. And so to me, you know, he's been, the brand has been back since 2007. So you figure Smashing Pumpkins was around late 80s, all the way through 2000 when they imploded, kind of at the height of their success. 
And then took seven years off. Billy did the Zwan project and did a solo record and then kind of realized, wait a minute, I have got a million dollar brand in Smashing Pumpkins. Why am I not doing this? He put together a new group of musicians and started putting out Smashing Pumpkins records again, but didn't have the cultural impact that the original run did. And let me know what you think here. But for me, Smashing Pumpkins are kind of second only to the Beatles in terms of artistic growth, commercial success, volume of music, and impact, you know, within a 10-year span. Like, Hmm. I thought they did such amazing work in their original run, you know, but I don't think people really fully appreciate it because all they think of is sad Billy Corgan on the roller coaster, the meme that's gone around. (laughs) I thought they've done such incredible work, but, you know, his style is very divisive. His voice is very divisive. Mm -hmm. Like you either Mm -hmm. love it or hate it. Plus he does indulgent 15 minute guitar solos and stuff like that. I think he takes silver fuck to 30 minutes. Sometimes I was kind of curious to see if they can actually pay this off. And so he's been releasing them 10 tracks at a time in volumes. You can't digest three albums at once. And so I was kind of waiting for the physicals to come out in April of this year, because I listen on CD. I listen, I I prefer high definition. I like the act of the CD. And so when hdtracks.com put the, um, you know, acts one and two on sale and I can get it for 13 bucks, I -hmm. bought it, burned a nice lossless CD. And I was like blown away by how good it was. Like this is the first smash record since the original run that I'm really excited about that actually sounds like it belongs in that legacy. The physical is coming out in all kinds of incarnations in April. And I'm really hoping because the third disc arrives with that, but there's going to be a fourth, 10 more songs that are just coming out on the deluxe edition. But that is sounds like they're going to put those 10 songs out on five dual sided, you know, seven inch singles. And to me, that'd be a big shame if that didn't come out at least on lossless digital or on CD, because then it's like, okay, you're taking the entire fourth act of this part of your journey and only giving it to the hipsters that buy really inconvenient vinyl. Mm-hmm. So to me, it'd be a shame if that's the only way they release the last 10 songs. But right now I'm excited to see where it's going. There's an artist named Jenny V that had been putting out Smashing Pumpkins style, like Echo and the Bunnymen kind of goth pop for years on her own. But then she got drafted into the Eagles of Death Metal. And so she's been touring with them and kind of not doing as much solo work. And then she married Slim Jim Phantom of the Stray Cats. And now she's doing some work with him. But oh my God, she has this Victorian steampunk style that would fit perfectly in with the Smashing Pumpkins. She's a bassist and a songwriter. And I think if you just put some of that feminine energy back in, Smashing Pumpkins could get back to being the big stadium band that they were always destined to be. But I think Autumn Acts 1 and 2 are a great start. I highly recommend people stream them, anticipating for what's going to happen in April when they kind of pay this off. It's one of those things where Billy Corrigan is ambitious as hell, and this time he really paid it off. Well, if Billy Corrigan's listening to this podcast, maybe he can take your recommendation on having a new bassist in the band. Let's pivot now to Lady Tron. This is a, a group. Maybe a, a performer I know nothing about. So tell me about oh this. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I discovered Lady Tron back in the, there was um, the electro clash scene, which was like very edgy, almost Scandi dance pop back in like the early 2000s. So the, one of the iconic records that came out during that era was Felix the House Cat. Kittens and the Glitz is a 
absolute masterpiece. One of my top 10 records of all time. Very kind of robot disco. Felix was a Chicago DJ that then started putting out his own songs in addition to his DJ sets on CD. But then he turned me on to Ladytron. So Ladytron is from England. I kind of describe it as absolutely exquisite robot disco, like Kraftwerk <laughs> reimagined with fembots. I wish that would have been like in the email or the Google Doc we were sharing because that absolutely encapsulates what I heard. <laughs> I, I was like, what am I listening to? And if you gave me that descriptor prior to me uh, listening to the to the record, I would have said, oh, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what it is. But it took me a while to kind of get into it. But I do like the song Misery Remember Me. I did I did enjoy that one. You know, I think they have six or seven records out now, and they are all just absolutely mind-blowing. So you have like the dual vo- female vocal over these just monster electronic beats. You know, it's really edgy. It's really fun. It's really trippy. And so oddly enough, just today, I went on their Wikipedia page, and it turns out, you know, so it turns out the band's name comes from the song Lady Tron by Roxy Music. And Brian oh, Eno, okay. so here's how Brian Eno describes the band. Lady Tron are for me the best of English pop music. They are the kind of band that really only appears in England with this funny mixture of eccentric art school dicking around and dressing up <laughs> with full awareness of what's happening everywhere musically, which is kind of knitted together and woven into something new. They have like some really good, you know, early, early stuff. But then they have this song called Destroy Everything You Touch, which is just absolutely mind-blowing and another song called international dateline and but they have never put out a dud record and i've even bought some of one of the singers has some solo records that sounds just like lady tron and is equally exquisite but time zero is their first album in many years and highly recommend it it's just play it loud they really push synthesizers to the max about what mm-hmm. you do to get a full orchestral yeah. kind of sound from it Put on your mascara and your latex <laughs> and get to the club. It's just absolutely fabulous. So we've got a group of three artists that have great name recognition and they have new music or at least a reissue, at least one of them. The Church, New Order, and Shania Twain. The Church, man, I haven't heard from them in a long time. Yeah, Probably. so they turned out, you know, like when I got notified that this record was coming out, And so I did get an advance of it. It comes out officially at the end of February. You know, I remembered as I was listening to it and processing it, what we talked about on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, there was all this research about how the brain processes new music, like Mm -hmm. literally new sounds that you haven't heard before. And it's sometimes very instinctive. If you don't hear something to reference other music that you like, you know, if you don't hear kind of patterns or sounds that kind of go to your comfort zone, it's Mm -hmm. abrasive at first, and you might not like it at first, but it might grow on you. It may or may not. And that was kind of what I remembered as I was reacting to the Hypnogog, which is the new church album. I think it's like their 27th record or something. Oh my God, really? Yeah, so they've been around forever. So oddly enough, once I found out about this, you can actually get some of their classic records on Amazon right now for Mm $4.99 new. CD. And so I I got the greatest hits because I had Heyday and I had their other one, the big one with Under the Milky Way. And so I had those on cassette, but I never transferred them to CD in the CD era. So it was kind of nice to re-engage with the church, you know, because their greatest hits kind of covers, I think, their first five or six records. Mm -hmm. I also had Heyday on cassette. And so I really remember liking that. 
And so this new record really doesn't go back to like, okay, we're just going to hit you with 10 more of these kind of classic shimmery guitar, you know, very comfort, comfort food hits. It's very psychedelic. It's a wandering record, untethered experiments. It kind of just is a free range. A couple of times during the album, you feel like you're back in your comfort food space, but other times they are just kind of wandering around. And so it's not one of those things where if you listen to it, you might really grab onto it right away. But I'm excited to kind of keep giving it future spins, especially once I can get it on official CD and get the full high fidelity experience, because I think probably CD or a lossless, you know, HD download is going to give you more of the texture within the instrumentation. So I'm not going to say I love it, but it's definitely interesting that they've kind of really kind of created this really atmospheric, far ranging album. An album to spend more time with to see if it reveals its charms, as it were. Yeah, now, here's one that definitely revealed its charms back in the '80s, and that's New Order's "Low Life." But there's there's a, another edition coming out. Yeah, so the or definitive that, edition. Out. So yeah, it's out now. But it's one of those things where, like on CD, I think it's 169 bucks. Oh you my know? god! And same thing with Power Corruption and Lies. You know, they're doing this definitive edition series. I think they started it with Movement. You know, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, where they're just emptying the the vaults, every gotcha. freaking demo live take BBC session, and then concert recording. They can, they're just dumping it in. It's a big cash grab, but I found also through hdtracks.com, you know, it's like, and, we're, and by the way, we have no sponsorship agreement with them. I just use them when I can't find something on CD. I try to buy it on lossless, either through Bandcamp or HD tracks title, just closed their download store. So I can't get from them anymore, but I bought, <coughs> excuse me, low life and mm-hmm. power corruption and lies on lossless digital download, even though I already own these CDs, but they've been remixed, remastered using the best technology for the the re-release. They have the B-sides, the remixes, and some rarities, some like demos and stuff like that. And it literally was a transformative experience Hmm. re-listening to these records. You know, Low Life was from 85. Right. You know, it was the first time because I had been a fan of the band. You know, I had movement. They had that EP with everything's gone green. You know, we started getting into Joy Division, but back in the 80s in Ohio, we had no idea what this band looked like. They didn't put their pictures on their albums at all. Yeah. And so we were just buying anything that said factory records on it. Had those obscure FAC and then a number. We're like, okay, we don't even know if this is New Order, but, you know, we kind of like the whole scene. And so we were, that's how we were engaging with these artists. And then when Low Life came out, it had the distorted images. And so it was like our chance to kind of see like, holy shit, this is what these people look like. I kind of forgot how poppy, at least now, both Power Corruption and Lies and Low Life are. You know, Mm -hmm. Low Life is a very kind of a mainstream rock record. Yeah, that first track, Love Vigilantes, it's very hooky, as it were. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't mean I don't mean that because the bass player is Peter Hook, but yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But so, oh my God, well worth listening to and rediscovering again. And yeah, even the instrumental demos that they do are fascinating. I think they stretch Elegia, you know, which was in one of the John Hughes movies, as a very emotional moment. And so that's a lot of ducky over emoting. I think that because I think it was from Pretty (laughs) Pretty Pink. He's having that emotional catharsis scene, and so. But, you know, so yeah, I can't afford the 169 for the CDs. I don't need, you know, for new me, New Order was never about their live performance. Radiohead, yes. Prince, yes. Where their live performance completely transforms what they accomplished in the studio. 
to me, New Order is a studio band. They did incredible stuff in the studio. And so it's great to re-experience this all the time, especially at a affordable price point. So if you mm-hmm. can, you know stream it online in HD, great. If you buy them online, the downloads really worth buying. And if you have the money, go yeah, buy the buy the box set. Sure. You, know? you want to spend cash and it's burning a hole in your pocket. Do it. Yeah. Let's get the Shania Twain. She is someone I haven't heard from in a mighty long time. And there's a reason for that, but she does, she does have a new album out called queen of me. Yeah. So here's the strange thing. Here's the reason I kind of bought this record. One, I'm an, I'm a sucker, you know, and this is where the industry gets me. You put out a special edition with bonus tracks. I'm going to buy the damn thing. Found out target had two bonus tracks. I was <laughs> in there buying soda pop and mouthwash. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy the Shania Twain record to get the bonus tracks. But here's the thing. I'm kind of new to Shania fandom. You know, it's one of those things where her mainstream stuff back in the day was just right, a little right. bit. I was in a different place. Yeah. You know, well, it's, so, it's pretty treacly stuff. It's appealing, right? It has its appeal. If you're like into pop or adult contemporary music, this is perfect. Even uh, even if you like country music, I guess it's a country pop record. And or at least it was back in the day, the Come On Over album. But she's perfectly fine. Her voice is different now for a reason. I've always been a fan of her story, you know, because mm-hmm. she was very late in life and late in career in terms of, you know, pop stars are now minted in their late teens or even early teens. Shania, from what I recall, had been kicking around like the state fair circuit for years trying to break through. And then when she finally broke through, she became one of the biggest pop stars in the world. And then there was that straight out of a movie twist where her husband, Mutt Lang, you know, winds up having an affair with her best friend. Right. And then she winds up marrying the jilted woman's husband. I'm like, oh my God, there's a movie. Yeah, Yeah. spouse swap. There it is. And so as this record came out, you know, she's been out of the, the limelight for a long time, especially looking at Madonna and how divisive Madonna's appearance was at the Grammys mm-hmm. and all this talk about ageism and stuff like that. You know, here Shania has never gone the plastic surgery route. You know, she's always been really true to who she is. And so I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? She's my age. I want to just support her. And so I love it. I thought it was very pleasantly surprised. It's gotten some good reviews. You know, she's once again doing like Taylor Swift. She's more in pop now than she was in the country, but it has kind of a foothold in both. And once again, this is not monumental, important music. It's fun. I put it on when I'm driving. I enjoy myself. I always have my toe tapping and it's just absolutely enjoyable and nothing more. I recommend it. Goes well with pop and mouthwash from Target, doesn't it? There you go. (laughs) Both things that give some sort of enjoyment. You don't want bad breath. You want maybe a refreshing beverage. And then you want a Shania Twain CD. But I was going to say that her voice sounds different because she has Lyme disease and she lost her voice. She had to learn how to sing again in a different voice. So she's trying out different voices on this record. And it does have a slightly different sound. You might hear somewhat of a little bit of a processed sound on there, but that's just her kind of experimenting. And one of the songs, Waking Up Dreaming, sounds like Close to Me by The Cure, at least the beat. I don't know if you noticed that. It's like oh, uh, one of the second or third track in or something like that. But I was listening to this like, is she going to cover The Cure? 
No, she's yeah. not. <laughs> no, that'd be really cool. That would be actually awesome. Paul Anka could do metal songs, you know. Yeah. Then <laughs> Shania can cover The Cure. That would be really cool. Another reason to like her, you know. Yes. And think <laughs> she slayed on all these recent red carpets. And so here I like someone who's completely owning who she is at this stage in life. Is can still be a sex symbol, a fashion icon, and a top of the pop charts performer. Mm-hmm. And of course, when she gets out on tour, she's going to do really, really well. I think it's important as much as we love kind of saying, okay, teens are always driving pop culture. I think it's important for our stars of every era to still be out there and kind of owning their shit. Definitely. So we've got a, a, a three more to go here for your picks. Holden Lawrence, uh, Unloved, and The Nils. Maybe we can wrap those up. And I've got a few that I just wanted to, yeah. to spotlight. There's Let's some songs. quick hit yeah. through these. Okay. So Holden Lawrence, he is the guitarist in Cleveland's The Modern Electric. And I thought a decade ago that the modern electric was going to be the next The Killers in terms of that just really great, amazing cinematic pop. And so I've been writing about them for years on Pop Dose for their last album, which was called Original Soundtrack, Original Motion Picture Soundtrack. Mm -hmm. The band put out basically Sundance quality music videos for each song on the album. You know, Mm -hmm. so I thought it was a great marketing tool. And both cinematically and also in their sound, they were an amazing band, and yet they completely disappeared. They're still around like in the Cleveland circuit, but haven't broken out nationwide. But since then, Lawrence, the guitarist, has proven himself an amazing frontman. He has put out two full-length records, a couple of EPs, and a lot of one-off singles. And the way I, I, when I have to elevate her pitch him, he's a second coming of the Smiths without all the baggage emotive new wave music, you know, very rooted in 80s sounds. But oh my God, he's got a beautiful voice. I think he does most of the the instrumentation on his records, but now he sounds like a band on par with peak era Echo and the Bunnymen, the Smiths, the Church, the Chameleons. Fires Fading into Black is his best work yet, but I highly recommend people check out Holden Lawrence on streamers or Bandcamp. You can even get physicals, but oh my God, really beautiful Hard on sleeve, romantic, dark, gothic tinged, post punk. I think that's. I'm the way. sold. I'm sold. I'm going to put that one on my list. So that's very pop leaning and accessible. Now we're going to go into Unloved by Polychrome. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the opposite. It's Polychrome by uh-huh. Unloved. Unloved is kind of like an English duo, and they were like the house band on Killing Eve, you know, that Sandra O oh series. Oh, right. For the seasons one and two soundtracks. So kind of like Morchiba filtered through David Lynch. Her sound is very dark, trippy, haunting, uncategorizable. Uh-huh. Killing Eve was one of those series I'm going to get to eventually. I've heard great things. I just never got around to it. But then I found out that Jarvis Cocker of Pulp guested on their last LP. It was a double record called The Pink Album. And so I'm like, oh, well, Jarvis is in with these guys. I got to check him out. And I think I spent within hours of first hearing this band, 60 bucks on buying their entire back catalog. And so Polychrome is probably their most accessible record yet. Very haunting, dark, vocal-centered, but with great melodic soundscapes, but not really songs. You know, there are more of these jarring oral visions, I might say. Put the needle down anywhere on any of their albums on metaphorically, of course, on streaming. Yeah, yeah, right, and right. I think you're going to really like them, especially the preview tracks for Polychrome that are out now, but the whole album comes out next week. And then finally, the Nils. Yeah, here is a band 
that has literally come back for the dead for me. And so I'm going to give you a little back, you know, story. So back in the 80s, when I moved back to Ohio, I wound up volunteering as a production assistant on a syndicated kind of cable access show called Alternate Beat, where one of the hosts was Jimmy Zero of the Dead Boys, you know, iconic punk band. They did, you know, it was kind of like an hour long show. They would put all the underground, you know, music videos on Mm -hmm. some live clips, that kind of stuff. But what happened was as I would run audio and we would get to some of the most amazing concerts in the world and interview the bands backstage. And it was my first chance to kind of go backstage at records as a member of the media. And so they were opening up at Peabody's Down Under in Cleveland, I think in 88, for the Godfathers. The Godfathers were really big at the time with birth, school, work, and death. Mm-hmm. And so we met yeah, we met the brothers that ran the band called Alex and Carlos Soria. And I really liked them. I picked up their record on cassette. And it was one of those things where they never put out another record. They were pre-Nirvana. They really did that 90s sound that Nirvana kind of ran with. Mm -hmm. They kind of were that bridge, you know, between those eras. And so it turns out a lot of those stars of those eras really rank them as one of their influences, you know, Mm -hmm. like a very prominent band. But their lack of success caused, tragically, Alex Soria killed himself in the 90s. And that was it. They were gone. And I thought Mm -hmm. they were gone forever until in my Facebook group, the Compact Disc Collector's Cave, someone posted their one album on CD. I'm like, oh, shit, this came out on CD. As I went to find a copy, it turns out the band got back together in 2015. And oh my God, they put out a banger of a record. Like, oh my God. Like even with the singer and the main songwriter gone, the brother Carlos is carrying on the tradition. It's amazing. Evan Dando from the Lemonheads sings a track on the new record. And so they just put out a new record or another new record on Bandcamp called the Five Roses EP. And so if you like that kind of really crunchy Husker Du and replacement sound, the Nils are just blowing the roof off the place. And I'm so glad they're back together. And so worth checking out all their stuff. They're kind of populating their band camp with a lot of their old, um, really hard to get stuff, including mm-hmm. their self-released cassette from like the early, I think 81 or 82. Really fun. Check out the Nils, but definitely check out their self-titled record on streaming. They're just some gorgeous, gorgeous guitar rock songs. You've yeah. got some diverse choices for recommendations that is for our listeners i think that this is a a really pretty strong list this month and i I feel like every one of them has its own unique aspect to it whether it's you know the shania twain this is just fun or the church is like i gotta give this more time or holden lawrence or unloved which you across where chiba meets david lynch i'm all like i'm like ooh. Or, or the Nils. And I'm going to go with a couple of recommendations. One is Lil Yachty's new album called Let's Start Here. It's been getting kind of slagged in the music press, not like the Pitchfork review, but the fact is that this is the the serious album by, by a rapper now. And what makes it serious is because he's fused styles, psychedelic, rock, hip hop, and soul throughout this. But and if you listen to that first track, it really sounds like Pink Floyd. So that gives that sort of sheen of, I'm a serious artist now. I'm not a big hip hop fan. I just saw this album cover and I thought, wow, that's kind of grotesque. I wonder what this music's like. And I just listened to it. And I thought, it's pretty good. 
And then I read up a little bit more about Lil Yachty, and now a lot of music podcasts are spotlighting this record as a way to look at the conservatism of hip-hop in general, a genre that doesn't tend to branch out beyond a certain sphere. Lil Yachty has done that, and it's met with some mixed results. But I leave it to you, dear listener, to check it out. Uh, the next one is Peter Gabriel. He is doing monthly music releases. Every 28 days, he's going to release a new song. Panopticom was one that he released in January. February comes, and he's got a song called The Court. On his website, he basically says that The Court Will Rise was a, a lyric that was floating through his head. And he used that as a kind of basis for a freeform, impressionistic lyric that connected to justice. But as he put it, there's a sense of urgency there. A lot of life is a struggle between order and chaos. And in some senses, the justice or legal system is something that we impose and try to bring some element of order to the chaos. Uh, That's often abused and it's unfair and discriminatory, but at the same time, it's probably an essential part of a civilized society, but we do need to think sometimes about how that is actually realized and employed. And he said the song was partly inspired by the work of Namati, whose mission, this is a, I guess, an NGO or a nonprofit, is to provide people around the world access to justice they may not otherwise be able to afford. Quick yeah. question, if you don't mind me, I feel like the press yeah, interrupting sure. you, you know. Okay, question, question, question. Keep yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm listening to this because I haven't heard the Gabriel tracks yet. I just want to know your opinion. Are they entertaining? Because it sounds like these are very important songs, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like, can you groove to them? Do they got some groove or some swagger, or some funk? Do you enjoy it? Or is it just you're hearing about important world issues through his music? but you enjoy it. I do. It took me a while to get into that first song, Panopticom. And one of the things he's doing is he's releasing various mixes, the bright mix, the dark mix, and then there's one other. So there's usually three mixes that come out. And Panopticom's dark mix is the one I like the best. The dark mix has this really heavy bass groove underneath it. And it's Tony Levin, who's his longtime bass player. But it sounds fantastic if you listen to it on a lossless format. So yes, the court reminds me a little bit more of Gabriel's progressive work with that he did with Genesis. So there's a bit of a throwback to that. So that's enjoyable for me uh, as, okay, a, cool. as, a, as a person who likes progressive rock music. So yes, mm. I do I do enjoy that. Now here's something that might not be that enjoyable, but mm. she is definitely an artist who is popular and do like to hate her as well. There's a lot of haters of Lana Del Rey, but she has a new album coming out in March called Did You Know There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? And the song that she's released, actually two songs, but the one I wanted to spotlight was called A&W. And it doesn't stand for the root beer. It stands for American and whore. So there's, it's, it's, yeah. there's some keywords to put in your Yeah, there, this, is a, this is a disturbing song where rape and drug use are kind of at the center of the narrative. A very, very dark tale with a chorus that's uh, not about having someone, uh, as it puts it, not having someone to love me anymore. Oh, okay. This is the experience of being an American whore. 
She layers this under a lot of electronic music, a kind of electronic music, which makes, at least for me as I listen to it, for a kind of a darkly futuristic vibe. One of the things that's interesting about when I listened to this song the first time, I couldn't really make out the lyrics, so I just Googled them and read along. And that's a little bit different for Lana Del Rey. She, like we were talking about country music at the outset, uh, her vocals tend to be pushed forward into the mix so you can really hear what she has to say. But this one, a little bit mumbly at, at times. But And I know she's an artist that a lot of people love to hate, but I found it to be a, a compelling listen. I'm not a super fan of hers. She does have phrasing that reminds me a little bit of Taylor Swift, but boy, this is the dark side of Taylor Swift if, if you're going to take the two artists as night and day, as it were. The last one I wanted to talk about is U2's Songs of Surrender, which yeah. uh, coincides with Bono's book that I reviewed in the in the previous episode. We were trading little barbs on, on our Google Doc, and I said, U2's revised, reimagined, regurgitated songs. There's the poll quote of the year. I want yeah. them to put that in their press materials. <laughs> because what they've done is they've gone back and re-recorded a lot of their back catalog. I think that there are 40 songs on here. Some of them are the hits like pride in the name of love one, a lot of classic U2 music that's been re-recorded and reimagined in a way. Does it work? I don't know. Well, yes, I do know from my view. I don't like it. I really, really don't like what they've done. I felt like, is this a band that's run out of gas and they're just yeah. like, Doing That's this because seems, it's not, yeah, that yeah, they don't have anywhere else to go. Like there's no more lane for them. They did record these songs during the lockdown phase of the pandemic. And the edge was saying that it was an experiment. It was an experiment to kind of get out of our comfort zones and see what else we could do with these songs. Just three- code for, we, we can't come up with anything else comparing <laughs> to right. Exactly. Everyone still hates us for giving them a free album on their iTunes. <laughs> yes, exactly. The most exactly. ridiculous crisis in the history of rock music. <laughs> oh my God, you gave me a free album. I feel so violated. I know that was that was dumb. I mean, it's just delete it. Now I know, understand. I understand that some people had trouble deleting it, but you could also just not listen to it. How's that? Yeah. Not even the wake-up call about the band. It was the fact that technology companies have access to your devices. That's yes. what I think freaked people out is, oh, right. shit, I don't have the privacy I think about. And yet, yeah, they're reading every email I've ever written, you know, so <laughs> it had nothing to do with YouTube, but they kind of were the fall guys for that whole thing. It was a bad management decision, that's for sure, just to give away this album and just give it to, to every iTunes user at the time. So what I found interesting about this project that they're doing, the Songs of Surrender, and I guess interesting is probably not the right word, but this is a band for better or for worse, that doesn't really look back on their back catalog. They tend to go from album to album and just try to push it forward. Do they make any musical leaps in terms of experimentation? Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes it falls flat. See the album Pop from the 1990s was a real dud. But I think because they're all in their 60s now, you know, sort of early 60s, that they wanted to do something that breaks out of their classic U2 sound. But I think of one thing that U2 fans have pretty much said to the band through their experimental phase in the 90s is that we like the classic sound for a reason because that's your signature sound and those are the sounds 
that speak to us in terms of fans and and penetrate us deep within our soul. It's anthemic rock. It's basically Christian rock without so much of the heavy-handed Christianity, you know. It's hymns and things like that. That's what we like. And this three songs that they have that you can listen to now, I just listen to them and even Bono's voice sounds uninspired. I'll listen to it when it comes out probably once, but it makes me want to go back and listen to the originals. And I guess that's not a good thing when you try to reimagine your back catalog. But meanwhile, Bono's son killing it. You know, Inhaler had a great record out two years ago. And now the Inhaler, which features his son on League Vocals, mm-hmm. has a new album coming out. We'll talk about it on the next podcast or maybe the April one. While dad is kind of gassed, his son is <laughs> full tank moving forward. Dad's running out of gas. Got to hand it off to the sun. That's a good way to end it. Keith, this was an expanded edition. Epic one. (laughs) Very epic. I want to thank you as always for coming on the podcast to talk new music with me and sometimes old music too, right? My pleasure. Can't wait for next month. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. Until next time, take care. Talk soon.